Christ is risen. Alleluia. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Alleluia. Peace be with you on this, uh, this day which goes by many names. We'll call it Low Saturday <laughs> or Easter Saturday, the last day of the Easter octave. Uh, and it is a blessed day. Uh, I'm glad to be recording the podcast today. I had intended to do it yesterday and ran out of time as the day progressed. But uh, it's really in God's providence that I'm recording it today because I've received just a ton of uh, beautiful graces today. <laughs> one of them is that for the first time in one month, I was able to go to Mass this morning uh, up in Cottage Grove with Father John Boyle at Our Lady of Perpetual Help, which I've mentioned before uh, on this show. A great priest in a great parish, uh, just about an hour north of here where I am in southern Oregon. And so I was uh, blessed to go up there. I was able to assist at an hour of adoration this morning, a holy hour, with the Blessed Sacrament exposed. After which we had a low mass, and then I went to confession with Father John, and even um, was able to uh, pray my breviary <laughs> there in the presence of our Lord in the, in the tabernacle. And so for me, um, it's been just a very beautiful day, and a day uh, in a way more beautiful than Easter Sunday itself. <laughs> I was just talking to some friends earlier online, catching up with some old friends who are seminarians elsewhere in the country, and um, and they were joking with me. They were saying, well, Easter Sunday's finally come for you. <laughs> because uh, up until now, throughout the whole octave, of course, I haven't been in any churches or assisting at any liturgies. But finally, even if it was only uh, uh, lowly, you know, low mass, <laughs> the lowest of masses, um, and I couldn't receive Holy Communion, nevertheless, it was such a blessing to be there, to be present at the liturgy, to make a good confession, and to just rest a little while in the, in the presence of the Lord, the real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. So that was a huge, unlooked-for grace that I received this morning. I was asked, invited by Father John to come up. Um, I hope you all had a good Holy Week and uh, that wherever you were, sheltering in place or however you were commemorating the holiest days of the year, that uh, they were an occasion of an outpouring of immense graces for all of you. Um, it really was for me, although as we've talked about and as I predicted, you know, it was a Holy Week like no other, like none other that we've ever experienced. But, uh, um, you know, I really experienced, though, an incredible consolation in the liturgies that I attended from my home, whether it was as, uh, you know, up through Holy Thursday, I was live streaming masses online and just assisting at them that way. And um, I, I attended very beautiful tenebrae services by St. John Cantius Parish in Chicago. During Holy Week, um, the normal offices that we pray in the, in, the, in the Divine Office, the Roman Breviary of Matins and Lauds, so those morning hours, they take the special name during Holy Week of Tenebrae, which means shadows. It's a very ancient custom in the Church that when you have a, a religious community or a seminary or something where there's multiple people who are praying the office together in common, that uh, you sing those hours, you chant them, and after each psalm, there's 14 psalms. After each one, you extinguish a candle. And you've got this big triangular, what's called a hearse. It's a big candle stand for 15 candles. 
and at the very top of the triangle is one that's left unextinguished, and that's the Christ candle. So you're gradually extinguishing all the candles till the church is almost in darkness. And then uh, an acolyte carries the Christ candle to the altar while uh, a canticle is sung, uh, the Benedictus, the canticle of Zechariah. After the canticle is sung, then the acolyte puts the candle away under the altar, and so the whole church is dark. And everyone makes a, a big noise with their feet or, you know, banging on the pews or something. It's called the strepitus, and it's supposed to symbolize the earthquake when, you know, the whole earth was dark, when our Lord hung on the cross, and there was an immense earthquake when He gave up His Spirit, symbolizing that all of creation uh, was kind of in mourning, you know, for, their crea for its Creator, was crying out to the Father. And so you make the strepitus, and the church is dark, it's filled with a big rumbling, and then the acolyte goes and brings out the candle again as a, a prefiguration of Christ's resurrection, the light that shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it, as St. John says. So it's incredibly beautiful liturgy, one that I look forward to every year. You, you celebrate it three days in a row. Um, Spy Wednesday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, uh, four days actually. Well, no, the Spy Wednesday one that you do in the evening, it's, 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 um, it's anticipated from Holy Thursday. So Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, you celebrate Tenebrae. So I streamed all those online. I was streaming Masses online up through Holy Thursday. But then on Good Friday, I did something different. I decided, um, you, you know, because Father John had told me that uh, we're not under any obligation to live stream Masses. I mean, because it's, it's, it's not the same. Uh, you know, it's just not the same. And you can make your active spiritual communion even without live streaming the Mass, you know. You could just spend some time praying with the texts of that liturgy or, you know, something like that. And so Good Friday, what I decided to do was to celebrate with my mom here in our house. It's just her and I who are living here. And so the two of us celebrated a kind of an abridged, simplified Good Friday liturgy of the Word. And uh, so I sang the Passion of St. John, which is a long uh, musical um, experience. <laughs> and it's another thing I just look forward to every year. These ceremonies of Holy Week are so rich and so beautiful. On Good Friday, you always you'll sing the Passion according to St. John in the extraordinary form. And um, usually it's sung in three parts. You have one one cantor singing the parts of Jesus, one singing the parts of the narrator and the people, and uh, one, or no, 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 one is just the narrator, and the third one is singing all the other parts, like the people, or Judas, or Peter, or whatever. So it's very beautiful, usually when it's sung with three cantors, and it was mediocre when it was sung just by me, but I, <laughs> I sang the whole thing, and, um, and it, it, was, uh, it was a moving experience to sing the Passion. It's my first time singing um, any part of the Passion, let alone the whole thing. So I've heard it done many times, but I sang the Passion and uh, we divided it up so that we divided it up into five parts and between the parts of the Passion, kind of, kind of at natural breaks in the narrative, and between each part we would then together sing a decade of the Divine Mercy Chaplet. And we were doing it at three o'clock, so it was very fitting, it was very timely. Three o'clock, the, the very hour that our Lord died on Good Friday. So we are hearing the Passion kind of intertwined with the, with the chaplet of the Divine Mercy. Um, 
which I'm sure you all know very well, so I won't get into those beautiful prayers, but it's, it's really, um, it's a, a litany of prayer offering back to the Father the sacrifice of His Son, which is the supremely satisfying sacrifice to the Father of all time, of all eternity, the love and the obedience shown to Him by His only Son. And so making that offering back to God. Very, very moving. And then after singing the Passion and, um, and, and the Divine Mercy Chaplet, we had just a little mini um, exaltation of the cross, uh, kissing the wood of, of the cross. And then we prayed the uh, petition, the traditional petitions of Good Friday. So, you know, the church always prays the same, I think it's 10, 9 or 10 prayers on Good Friday every year for a number of intentions, for the good of the church, for the Holy Father, uh, for the nation, for Christians, for the Jewish people, for converts, for atheists, uh, for, you know, a, a whole litany of, of people we need to pray for. And this year, the church actually added a new intention for an end of the coronavirus pandemic and for all those who are suffering. And so we pray those prayers in union with the whole church. And then we, um, how did we conclude that liturgy? I don't remember now. Maybe we just sang an, an Our Father and prayed the collect or something like that. But, um, you know, but that, that was very moving for me. Um, to, in a sense, you know, quote unquote, to preside <laughs> at, that, at that tiny liturgy of just me and my mom. But um, I really felt a sense of being, being in communion with the church. And obviously it's not an ideal circumstance and I did go on and live stream uh, a more solemn Good Friday liturgy from St. John Cantius at a, a different time that day. But um, there was something that was just very beautiful about that experience of celebrating that liturgy there in our living room. And on Holy Saturday for the Easter Vigil, we did something very similar. And another family member uh, video streamed in <laughs> and we put her up on a laptop so she could participate but we had just kind of a, a family liturgy of the word and we each took turns there were three of us and we, we went on a rotation between us each of us read one of the readings we did all nine readings first I sang the exultet which I love above all other hymns. I've talked about all these customs I love and ceremonies I love. I love the Exalted above all. And it's always sung at the Easter Vigil. It's this incredibly beautiful hymn. I'm sure you all know. Um, and so we, I sang the Exalted. Then we did the nine readings, rotation through each of us. And then after each one sang a, a little psalm with a few, you know, a few verses of a psalm as the church uh, has laid out that liturgy for us. Incredibly beautiful sequence of readings and psalms that kind of just take you by the hand and lead you through salvation history from just how God has always been with His people and leading us and guiding us uh, into an, an ever deeper and, and more perfect revelation of Himself, showing us who He is and how He loves us and guiding us into a deeper and deeper communion with Him. And guys, I was... I was on the verge of tears, and in fact, you know, we got through the whole thing, and, and, I, and I proclaimed the gospel, and then I was just giving a, a little reflection kind of to my, to my family members, <laughs> and I was getting choked up, and I was just saying, you know, it's just so beautiful that we're able to celebrate this liturgy. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, we, we had a little Paschal candle of our own, you know, <laughs> and so I said, you know, we're in these 
it would be we'd be hard pressed to find any less ideal circumstances than what we've got, right? We're here, we're separated from the church, we're in our own homes, we're not even all united here in one home, we're connected over a video link, we're doing the best we can. But you know, we, we've sung the exaltat, we've read the readings, we've lit the Paschal candle, and we went on to pray the litany of saints, and we made our act of spiritual communion. I said, this is the Easter vigil. This, you know, this is the church right here where we are. And our Lord promises, where two or three are gathered in my name, right, I will be there in the midst of them. And where two or three are called together by the Lord, called together, ek kaleo, that's the ekklesia, that's the church. God is calling us out, calling us together to unite in worship of the Father, worship in spirit and truth, in union with the Son, and animated by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we were doing. And so for me, it was a profound consolation. And I just felt such a, an incredible joy uh, in, in the Holy Night, Easter Vigil, when, the, you know, that, that most blessed night, as the Exultate says, that separates Christian believers from all others throughout the world. And so it was an immense consolation, guys. And I, I was just overwhelmed with graces that night um, to be with my family and to, you know, to pray these beautiful and ancient prayers which I've come to know very well and to love so much over my years as a Catholic and as a seminarian. And now in these circumstances to be able to pray them, it was just, it was just beautiful. On Easter Sunday, I was a little bit more discouraged because I wasn't able to go to Mass. And uh, I, had, I live-streamed Mass with my Archbishop from the cathedral, but it, you know, it just wasn't the same. So I was a bit uh, unhappy with that, but we made the best of it, and my mom and I uh, took a little excursion to go to the homes of some older family members who live around, you know, the surrounding region here uh, in our county, and so we just drove around to their houses, and we had some Easter lilies, and we dropped off lilies at their doorsteps, and we made little goodie bags with some chocolates and Easter cards, just dropped them off there. Um, and gave them a call or rang the doorbell so they could come out and we could wave from a safe distance, you know. <laughs> so it was a strange Easter, it's a strange Holy Week, and it's still kind of a strange Paschal Tide now. Um, you know, as, as time is going on, um, I'm just so grateful I was able to at least go to a Mass and participate in, in a liturgy in a real church one day during this Easter octave. Incredible. So there's no word on when the pandemic is going to end or when the churches might reopen. You know, it's all still so up in the air, very indefinite. Um, someone was asking me a couple days ago about my summer retreat I was planning to go on in Tallahassee. I have no word on that. The retreat center has not announced anything. So uh, my vocation director and I are just kind of um, in limbo. You know, we're just, I'm just, I'm just waiting. <laughs> I'm just waiting. I have no idea. It's difficult to plan anything, really. Uh, so we're just kind of going to wait and see. And uh, I'm going to be home here for at least, you know, several more weeks. We're wrapping up the semester still. So I'm planning to at least be here through the end of the semester, which will come the second week of May. If I was to go to Tallahassee, I'd be leaving the last week of May. So um, hopefully, you know, by semester's end, at the very latest, we should be hearing whether the retreat is on or not. Personally, I kind of doubt it. I hear that 
the uh, Florida is seeing a big spike in cases and doesn't seem like they are likely to round the bend anytime soon. But what do I know? I mean, everything is just so up in the air. It's hard to predict from day to day or even hour to hour what's going to happen next. So we'll see. Um, I'm hopeful. But, you know, I'm also kind of indifferent. Uh, I think in, a, in the sense of a good spiritual detachment, I think, about this retreat. Um, I'm, I'm excited about it. And when I heard about it, I was very excited about it. Because this retreat has done such good things for you know, some of my brothers. I know others who have gone on it who have just been so blessed by it. So, of course, I would love to go. But um, I, I, I'm feeling really a sense of detachment toward it. You know, it's, everything is in the Lord's hands right now. And this time of coronavirus, <laughs> um, one blessing we've talked about so much is the, the, the gift of hunger, which the Lord is teaching us about during this time. Another one, though, we can't neglect is the gift of detachment, the lesson of detachment, the lesson ultimately that we are not in control of our lives, you know? And uh, I was talking to my vocation director just the other day, and he, was, he mentioned how hard it is to plan anything right now, you know, um, about our summer assignments as seminarians or various events. Like normally we would have a summer camp for young men, high school, middle school and high school boys to discern um, priestly vocations and things like that. We just normally have on the calendar, we have to kind of put off, postpone, cancel, and everything's either canceled or in a weird limbo state. <laughs> and so he was mentioning that to me and, she said, yeah, I can't plan anything. And I was kind of joking. And I said, yeah, <laughs> what are we supposed to say to the Lord? All I know how to do is plan. <laughs> and he kind of laughed and said, yeah, it's true. So, but we, we go to the Lord, you know, with a good sense of humor. And we recognize our own weakness and fallibility. And um, that our, our hearts do desire control, most of us. We kind of feel better when we're in control, when we know what's coming down the pipe. But there can be a real joy in surrender. You know, if we know the Lord, if we really know Him and we know that, that He loves us and that in His will is our peace and that His will is greater than our plans, then we can have an attitude of detachment in the sense that St. Ignatius of Loyola talks about it. Not detachment in the sense of... Um, you know, not implying any kind of coldness or distance or kind of a lack of interest or apathy in a negative sense at all. But detachment in the sense that whatever it is that God is going to ask, I am disposed to say yes, you know. So with regard to this retreat, and, and I'm not, not saying that I'm perfect at this by any means. I just wanted to share like what I think is an attitude the Lord's inviting us to during this, this season in a particular way. When so much seems to be on the, on the uh, more uncertain side of things, you know, I mean, the the invitation is, we could say, uh, Lord, if it is your will that I go on this retreat, then all you need to do is arrange things so that I can go, and then I'll go. And if it's not your will, then simply <laughs> let things continue as they are, so that I'm not able to go, and I won't. You know, and in that, that that's um, that can really be a source of great interior peace, because then it, it takes the pressure off. You know, and you, you you're no longer having to sort of 
weight and anxiety. You're not having to kind of, um, I don't know, refresh your email 37 times a minute or something. <laughs> See if there's any updates. You just, you just place your trust in the Lord, knowing that He has our, our very best interests at heart. He really does. His love is a love of benevolence as well as a love of union, which is something we're going to talk about a little later in this podcast. It's a it's love of benevolence. You know, He wills what is good for us. And if we know that, then we can put our trust in Him, knowing that He will not fail us no matter what happens. So I'm waiting on more news about that retreat, uh, whenever it might come my way. <laughs> in the meantime, I got some big news a couple of days ago that I'm excited to share with you. If you follow me on Instagram, uh, or if, I don't know, maybe we've talked already, depending on who you are. I've talked to a lot of a lot of you. <laughs> but in case you haven't heard, I just got the news about where I'm going to be assigned for my upcoming pastoral year. So as you know, seminarians usually will spend a whole year living in a parish as part of our theological uh, training formation. Usually it comes between your second and your third year in theology, which is where I am right now. So I'm finishing up year two, and I'm about to go on my pastoral year. I will be living in a parish. Basically, as a seminarian, you go, uh, and you're, you're doing a, a year-long kind of, you could say maybe internship or like residency, like a, a doctor does perhaps, under the full-time mentorship of a pastor. And so you just assist that priest with all of his pastoral duties. You help out in the parish, um, and you just maybe you'll take on some ministries kind of of your own, which he will assign to you, like teaching a class here or there, or you know youth ministry or something of that nature, perhaps. But pretty much you're just there. You live in the in the rectory. Um, you're you're at all the masses. You're at all the things. You go to all the council meetings and whatnot, and uh, you're just basically living the life of a priest. Obviously, without the sacramental components because you're not a cleric yet you can't celebrate any of the sacraments per se but you're present at all the masses and you're serving and you're assisting you know to the very greatest extent that you can so it's pretty exciting uh not least because what i've heard from all my friends who've gone before me my more senior uh seminarian brothers is that once you go on your pastoral year it's pretty much just downhill from there it's just a quick kind of slide <laughs> down into ordination and time just flies by. So I believe it. I mean, time is already flying by so fast um, despite this whole kind of global slowdown, shutdown, hit the pause button with the coronavirus. But um, up until this hit, I mean, time has just been rolling. And so, you know, I'm excited to go on the pastoral year and the parish that I will be going to is St. Rose of Lima in northeastern Portland. And the pastor there is Father Matt Libra, which will be great. Father Matt and uh, Seminarian Matt, as my grandmother said. <laughs> so it'll be good. He's a good priest. I know him. Um, I don't know him super, super well, but I've met him several times. I've been to confession with him. In fact, he was my spiritual director one summer when I was living in Portland at a different parish for a summer assignment. Um, and so I know that he's a, a very holy priest, reverent, um, faithful, orthodox, funny. His parishioners love him. So I think he'll just be an amazing mentor, and I'm looking forward to going there. And I know the parish, I, I don't 
I don't think I know any of the parishioners there uh, yet by name. But I've met some of them because I would go there sometimes for daily mass when I was living in the Portland area on my days off. Sometimes I would go to St. Rose. And um, I know they've got a, a school, kindergarten through eighth grade. So I'll probably be helping out with the school. And uh, I, I'm just, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm looking forward to being in Portland again. Um, I, I, I know that area of the city a little bit. So it'll just be nice. It'll, I think it'll really be a good fit. And it'll be, I'm sure, a time of immense growth. Um, practical discernment, just immersion in parish life and being with the people. I'm just, I'm really excited. So uh, that'll probably be starting in August though. I know Father Matt's going on a 30-day retreat in July. And if I go on my retreat, Lord willing, that would be in June. And so, and then I'm in classes halfway through May. So probably pretty much I'll start in August. If I don't go on my retreat, heaven knows what I'll do from May until August. But anyway, we'll, we'll find out later. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's another one of those kind of up in the air question mark things. But uh, yeah, so that's, that's what's coming down the pipe. I'm really looking forward to it. If you are in the Portland area, then um, yeah, send me a message or give me a call around about September 1st and uh, we'll have to get together. Uh, oh yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention, just kind of uh, for just a, a cool, cool thing that I did today. Uh, <laughs> earlier this afternoon, I connected with two of my seminary brothers from across the USA, and we sang Vespers together on the internet. Uh, one of the brothers is living in Kansas City, St. Joseph, Missouri. The other one is in New Orleans, Louisiana, which has been super hard hit by the coronavirus. I didn't know I guess I haven't been following the news closely enough or something, but he was telling me just how bad things are there. It sounds awful. So we're praying for New Orleans and uh, as well as the whole world, but especially there. So he said he's been, he's been locked within the walls of his seminary for two months. They're not allowed to leave. But uh, we all connected from our various time zones and <laughs> various locations. We coordinated this. We all logged on together on WhatsApp, and uh, it was great the way we did it. It required a little flexibility because the call kept dropping, so we'd have to kind of reconnect real quick and jump back in where we were. But uh, we sang First Vespers for, for tomorrow, which I'll mention in a moment. It has countless names, but we'll just call it Low Sunday. Or we can call it the Second Sunday of Easter. How about that? The Second Sunday of Easter. So we sang First Vespers. Uh, it was beautiful. And it, it was such, it was, it just made me so happy. It was, it was such an occasion of joy. First of all, I haven't seen these guys since last summer. These are friends I made over in Rome. We all uh, went on this trip together last summer, the Rome experience. We traveled together for six weeks in Europe. So these are really, really wonderful friends and they're great men. I know they're going to be great priests. In fact, one of them is about to be ordained next month, hopefully May 30th. Although it sounds like it'll probably be in a, just in a private ceremony with the bishop and maybe his parents because of all these social distancing uh, requirements. But that's coming up, so let's pray for him. His name's Nick. You can pray for him uh, in the coming weeks. But it was just so good to connect with these guys. and We, we were just laughing uh, <laughs> so much. <laughs> it was difficult to start prayer. But um, 
we sang a beautiful Vespers service for the glory and honor of God. And it just gave me a new appreciation too for how much technology is helping to connect us during this crisis, you know. I mean, I, you know, I, I come from, I mean, I'm, com I'm coming out of a more conservative kind of um, circle, okay, social circle, right? And we can be pretty down on technology sometimes. And I, me, me too. I mean, I admit it, you know. I mean, and it's kind of a love-hate thing because um, on the one hand, I mean, the technology enables us to do so many cool things. But we also have to be cautious and kind of sometimes uh, worry a little bit about the social and the psychological effects of so much technology use. I mean, it seems to contribute to isolation very often and loneliness, depression, and... Uh, anxiety and just a number of psychological and, and, and really spiritual um, illnesses. But that being said, during this crisis, the advances in technology have made it possible to do so many things that I never would have considered. You know, for example, live streaming adoration. Did you know you could do that? <laughs> well, you can. A lot of parishes, when they have the ex exposition of the Blessed Sacrament for adoration, they are live streaming it now. So you can just go on YouTube and type in adoration. And uh, different parishes do it at different times. So it's easiest if you just kind of go on and, and look that up, I found, rather than trying to bookmark a certain parish. Because very often if you one parish might be having adoration now, then you go back later and they're not or something. But if you just look for adoration, you'll usually find a few churches that are live streaming it. And you can tune in whatever time you want to pray. And um, then you can you can you can see a live video feed of the Blessed Sacrament exposed for, for personal prayer there on your computer in your bedroom or wherever you are. And okay, yes, obviously it's not the same as being in a church or an adoration chapel. But you know what? I have found that it can be a really effective occasion for deep interior prayer because you just orient yourself toward the Blessed Sacrament there. You can do the same thing by just kind of turning your chair towards wherever your closest Catholic church is, you know, your local parish, and just kind of in, with, with intentionality, you know, spiritually, orient yourself. As you orient your body, also orient your spirit towards the tabernacle. And you just know, maybe you're five miles away or whatever, or further, but you just know I'm facing toward our blessed Lord in the tabernacle. And you just, you just say, Jesus, I firmly believe that you are here and that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I beg your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. And you just make your, that act of faith and confidence that, yes, he can hear you and see you, even though you can't see him or hear him. He really is there. And, uh, his dwelling place among men is not far from you. And from that tabernacle, he's reaching out to you with uh, an eternal gaze of love and wrapping you in his embrace. You can just do it that way, and I often have, but, you know, it can be especially helpful just to pull up a live stream of, of adoration. You can do the same thing. You can say, Jesus, wherever this church is, because <laughs> sometimes you don't even know, or maybe it's in Poland or something like that, or, you know, who knows. But... <laughs> Wherever you're live streaming it from, you just say, Jesus, wherever you are, I'm, I'm gazing at you right now through this miraculous means of technology. I'm gazing at you there, present on the altar, exposed, unveiled for adoration. And I desire to adore you more and more ardently 
more and more faithfully, more and more lovingly. Jesus, increase my faith, my hope, my love, my devotion, and my reverence for you. So that's just something I never would have considered, but you know, modern technology makes it possible. Likewise, live streaming masses, I've never done that before, but in the last several weeks, I've been to masses, quote unquote, been to masses all over the country. I mean, I've never been able to visit the parish of St. John Cantius in Chicago, but I was there for most of Holy Week, and they have the most beautiful liturgies I've ever seen anywhere. And I've been assisting at masses, you know, up and down the West Coast, <laughs> a lot of them here in Cottage Grove from Father Boyle, but also all over, you know, Idaho, Los Angeles, Portland at our cathedral. So it's an immense grace. And then this Vespers thing with my friends was just kind of a, a you know, uh, the icing on the cake, you know, <laughs> that we're able to do this, you know, we're, we're thousands of miles apart from each other probably, or I don't know how far, at least hundreds. <laughs> and we're in all different time zones and all different circumstances. And, you know, one of us is working. One of, one of us is, uh, well, the other two of us are both full-time students, but I'm at home and the other one's in his seminary, locked up in his seminary. But uh, they were all able to come together and, and do this was just, well, it was a beautiful grace. So God is good to us. God is with us. In the coming weeks, I have a lot of work to do as we're coming to the end of the semester. Um, I have actually by Monday, so I have about 48 hours left to do this. I got to write a homily for a feast day of Mary. It's the very last homily I have to do for my preaching course. So I'm going to work on that a bit tonight and, and tomorrow, I think. Um, so I'm going to knock that out. You'll probably see it up on the podcast as a bonus episode by Monday or at latest by Tuesday. And then I have to do a case study for canon law. Uh, it'll be the last one also. We've done five. So case study, basically the professor gives us a, a situation and we have to, well, he'll, he'll give us a whole situation, all the details, and then ask us certain questions. And we have to be able to answer those questions using the church's canons, you know, the laws of the church which is not as easy as it might sound sometimes because those canons require interpretation. And uh, so it's not just as simple as looking something up in the rule book, you know. <laughs> and you got to make sure that your interpretation is in line with the correct principles for interpreting canon law. So you can't just kind of give it your best shot. So I'm working on that. Um, and then I've got three papers left to do. I've got a paper on the book of Revelation. I've got a paper on human sexuality. It's a moral theology course using mostly um, the writings of St. John Paul II on the theology of the body. got a paper to do for that. And then I've got one more paper to do also for canon law, <laughs> a book review on this uh, mind-numbingly boring book I'm reading on the history of medieval canon law. Lord, deliver us from canon law. <laughs> oh, I'm only half joking. <laughs> but uh, so I've, I've got all, all that to do over the next couple of weeks. And then, you know, we're still going to have final exams, even though we're home. I don't know how they're going to proctor it or how they're going to set it up over the Internet. But one way or another, we're going to have to do our finals. So that's coming up, too, as we slowly march on towards May. So the next few weeks are going to be fairly jam-packed 
Um, although it is Easter, it is also the ending of the academic year with all of the various things that that entails. <laughs> so over the, well, for the time being, I've stopped recording the daily reflections, as you might have noticed. Um, I stopped on Easter Tuesday. I thought that was a fitting day to, to just hit the pause button because when I, when I came home and I initially started doing the reflections, the Archbishop's decree had only suspended public masses until the 14th, April 14th, Easter Tuesday. And so that was already initially the day I was planning to kind of go until. And then, of course, he extended the decree indefinitely. And now we're, we're just kind of all waiting to hear when we're going to go back to Mass again, whenever the state will let us. So um, I, I know I had said I will just do the reflections until the uh, restrictions are lifted. Initially, though, when I said that, I was thinking it would be on April the 14th. So I hit the pause button on the 14th. That being said, um, I know that some of you have profited from these reflections, I think. I've heard from at least a couple people who have enjoyed them. And so if you're listening to this podcast now and you're really thinking, you know, I, I would really like it if you would continue with these reflections. It would be really helpful for me then just send me a message and um, I'll see what I can do. But the thing is, though, I've noticed that the, the listener count, I can see how many people listen to each episode. And it was kind of dropping, you know. Initially, it was like uh, 10, 15, 20 people. And then it was going down to like 8, 5, 4, 3. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know who's listening. But, um, I mean, you know, most, I'm sure all of you have other sources that you're going to for your for spiritual nourishment during this time and it's been several weeks we're kind of getting settled into a routine now we've got live masses probably we're live streaming and various you know many priests who are much more qualified and better preachers than i am are sharing their wisdom as well i just figure probably no one is really in dire need anymore of my <laughs> my little uh reflections day to day that being said if you are Please feel free to let me know, and I, I, I will try to record some more. But um, as things are getting busier, I just decided, you know, I'll take a, a page out of Father Roderick's book, <laughs> this Dutch, Dutch priest podcaster I've mentioned before who I listened to. His big advice during the pandemic, working at home, is give yourself permission to do less. And so I'm kind of taking a leaf from his book and, and doing a little bit less in the coming days. Now, as promised, I want to talk to you for a few moments about this coming Sunday, tomorrow, and exactly what this day means for us as Catholics. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. This Sunday is a day that goes by an incredible number of names. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this second Sunday after Easter, historically, it's a very important day. Of course, we have the whole Easter octave, right? Which goes from Sunday to Sunday. It begins with Easter Sunday, and it goes, well, actually, it goes, it goes through today, Easter Saturday, uh, until the office of mid-afternoon prayer, or known. And then when the church sings Vespers, as I just sang with my brothers on web chat, when we sing Vespers, the Easter octave is officially ended. And 
so first vespers begins this this next sunday the second sunday of easter it's the conclusion of the octave so one name for this sunday is pascha clausum means the the closing of the easter octave basically <laughs> the closing of of easter the ending of easter but that name is a little bit misleading because you know easter goes on for 50 days so as Father Boyle said this morning in his Mass, Father John, in Cottage Grove, he said, um, you know, the kind of exuberant joy that we've had for eight days, that is coming to an end. And now we will proceed with a, a kind of a more sober joy <laughs> for the remaining weeks of the Easter season. We're still rejoicing that the Lord is risen. And at every Mass, we say the fourfold Alleluia before the Gospel, you know, Alleluia, Alleluia. Uh, whatever the verse is, and then again, Alleluia, Alleluia. Um, and the same thing in the Divine Office. You know, At the end of uh, Lauds and Vespers, we say, Blessed be the Lord, Alleluia, Alleluia. Uh, thanks be to God, Alleluia, Alleluia. <laughs> it's, it's usually in Latin, I had to think about, what exactly is that in English? <laughs> Blessed be the Lord, thanks be to God, Alleluia, Alleluia. So the exuberant joy is coming to an end. Now we're moving on into the more sober joy of the Easter season, which means we're going to start getting saints again. You know, throughout uh, Holy Week and now the Easter octave, there have been no saints celebrated at all. These two weeks, the most sacred weeks of the, of the liturgical year, are reserved. You can't celebrate any kind of feast whatsoever. Only the masses of this season. But starting after tomorrow, we will be celebrating some saints again. So next week, we'll have probably some wonderful uh, stories from the lives of the saints to discuss. This Sunday is also called um, Dominica in Albis, which would be kind of like the uh, White Sunday. Dominica in Albis. And the reason it's called that is because the neophytes in, in ancient times in Rome the neophytes who were received into the church and baptized at the Easter vigil, they would be clothed in white garments. And throughout the entire Easter octave, they would wear the white garments. I mean, everywhere, <laughs> everywhere they went uh, for these eight days of, of rejoicing and feasting as a symbol of their rebirth in Christ. And this was a pretty brave thing to do, if you think about it, in ancient Rome because Christians were very often persecuted, especially from the time of Emperor Nero and up until Constantine, really. Christians were heavily persecuted. And so you can imagine that the Roman authorities would catch on pretty quick that those who were walking around wearing white garments for eight days after Easter probably have just converted. <laughs> and they would become uh, the targets of special persecution, maybe even martyrdom. So to become a Christian was a serious thing. And to walk around for eight days wearing white garments, you're taking your life into your own hands. I mean, talk about detachment and putting your trust in the Lord. But after these eight days were up, on this Sunday, Dominica in Albis, the White Sunday, or the Sunday in white, I guess, uh, the neophytes would ceremonially you know, take off the white garments and put on their ordinary clothes again to show that, well, now... Um, their period of kind of the church rejoicing specifically over them with exuberant joy, to use that wonderful phrase again, that period has ended. And now these neophytes are being absorbed, so to speak, into the greater assembly of the Christian people, 
they're not any longer going to wear these special garments to mark them out as distinct. Now they have been received into the body of Christ, into the ecclesia, the church, the, the, the entire church, the people of God. Uh, and so there's a beautiful line that we read today from First Peter at this Mass, uh, today, Easter Saturday. Once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it's as if for these eight days, the focus is on you, you know, the neophytes. You were not God's people, but now you are God's people. But on this second Sunday of Easter, Dominica in Albis, the focus becomes on the whole people, God's people. It's no longer just about you. Now you're being absorbed into the whole of God's family, which is a beautiful thing, you know. Um, it's, it's showing the reality of their adoption now that they're part, of the, they're part of the family, they're part of the church. This day is also traditionally called Low Sunday. And so today in some places it's called Low Saturday <laughs> because, you know, Sunday kind of starts on Saturday when you pray Vespers at, at any rate. So Low Sunday, I've never quite been able to figure out why, but my best educated guess is that it's called Low Sunday because it follows the very highest Sunday, <laughs> namely Easter Sunday. Easter is the highest of the high, you know, of all Sundays, um, such that every Sunday throughout the year could be called a little Easter. But Easter itself is the, obviously the greatest, you know, of all, the mother of all Sundays. So this second Sunday of Easter following after is low just by comparison. Like anything would seem low following the glories of Easter and its octave. So traditionally it's called Low Sunday. And traditionally it also has another name. Quasimodo Sunday. <laughs> My favorite of all the names for this Sunday. Quasimodo Sunday. Hunchback Sunday. No. Quasimodo means, it's a wonderful Latin word. It means in the manner of or uh, like to whatever, you know. It comes from the entrance antiphon for this Sunday. And we actually heard it at Mass this morning, uh, Saturday, if you attended a Latin Mass or an Extraordinary Form Mass, you would have heard this text, Quasimodo Infantes Geniti, um, after the manner of newborn infants, thirst ye for spiritual milk, so that you may, I would have to look up the whole text, but <laughs> I'm going to give you a rough uh, citation. <laughs> so, uh, after the manner of newborn infants, thirst for spiritual milk, so that you may grow up to full manhood in Christ. Something like that. So Quasimodo Sunday, it means, uh, you know, I, I like newborn infants Sunday, which is just a beautiful image. Just consider, think about the neophytes. Think about those who've just become Catholics, who've just become Christians. They are like newborn infants in the faith. And so the church is encouraging them, like, like, like newborn infants, like suckling infants who have not yet been weaned from their mothers, thirst for good spiritual milk so that you may grow up to be strong men, you know, to be full members of the body of Christ. I mean, you already are. You've been received into the church, but it's that mystery of already but not yet, you know. You've been received into the body of Christ, but now you have to make it your own. You have to grow in virtue. You have to grow in knowledge. You have to surrender more and more perfectly. You have to walk the road of perfection like the rest of us. You have to thirst for spiritual milk, that is, to receive all that Christ wants to give you, to pour out into your heart in order to make you strong, to 
conform you to His image. So to thirst for spiritual milk means to, well, to have, uh, to have a hungry heart, hungry to receive all that God wants us to, and to acknowledge our need and to know just like little, little children who depend on their mothers for everything, so we depend on Christ for everything. And we can look up to Him like little baby birds, you know, <laughs> looking toward their mothers. Uh, we, so we look toward Christ to pour out His graces into us, to make us strong, to give us the strength that we need, to give us our daily bread, you know, to give us our daily milk. So Quasimodo Sunday, a Sunday with a very funny name, <laughs> which has a, an incredibly beautiful spiritual meaning. And then finally, in the, uh, the Novus Ordo, the New Order of Mass, which is celebrated in most churches around the world these days, it is Divine Mercy Sunday. And this is also such a beautiful celebration to follow right after Easter. Because consider, you have Easter Sunday, the Sunday of the Lord's resurrection. And by the Lord's rising from the dead, what does He desire most of all? He desires to give us new life. He desires to raise us from the dead in a certain way. From the death of sin and misery into the new life of grace and of union with Him. And so right after Easter, what do we celebrate? But Divine Mercy Sunday, the mercy of God, who goes into the deep places of human misery, the very depths of our misery, to raise us to the heights of His glory and of His love. And so on this Sunday of Divine Mercy and the Sunday of Quasimodo, the two themes really go together, don't they? We acknowledge our deep um, dependence on God, our, 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 our deep you could say poverty or deep indigence uh, in the sense that little children are poor. <laughs> and not, uh, Little children are far poorer than any adult could ever be poor because children can't do anything for themselves. That's how poor we are with respect to God. But that poverty is our glory because it attracts God's mercy. God's mercy which goes to the depths. The poorer, the littler we are, the more God's mercy reaches out to save us. And so we acknowledge the depths of our poverty and we glory in the Lord's mercy, which comes down to our depths to wrap us in His embrace and to lift us up high. So this Sunday, Sunday with many names, a Sunday with many themes, uh, but it's a, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a bridge between Easter uh, proper, you know, the, the week of exuberant joy <laughs> and the coming season of sober joy which is going to lead us on through these coming weeks towards the great feast of Pentecost and then on into ordinary time again. And so, you know, time ever marches on, um, but the themes of this Sunday are themes to keep in mind as we go on through the entire season of Easter. Our dependence on God, God's mercy toward us. And we should also remember especially to pray for the candidates. Uh, I, I keep saying neophytes. But of course, the majority, if not probably all catechumens in the church these days were not received at the Easter Vigil like they normally would be. So they're all in limbo too, just waiting to see when are we going to be baptized? When are we going to be received into the church? When are we going to make our first communions? So you can imagine, if you think about our hunger, imagine their hunger and how desperately they desire to be united to Christ's church in these days. Let us pray for them especially, especially tomorrow. It's the day that the neophytes normally take off their white garments. We'll pray for those who have not yet put them on. 
but who desire ardently in their hearts to put on Christ, to be united to Him in the Church and in the sacraments. On this Quasimodo Sunday. (laughs) Now, I'm wrapping up this podcast. I'm coming to the end, but I want to speak a little bit about a wonderful author I've been reading over the past couple of days. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts to Christ. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. I apologize if that introduction made you think I was about to talk about Shakespeare. I am not. (laughs) I am still behind on the Shakespeare 2020 project. I'm striving to get caught up, um, but it's not going so well. (laughs) So... Uh, I'm just going to keep doing my best. You know, this week is Hamlet, which is one I've read before. So I think I can probably get by with kind of maybe just skimming it. Um, I mean, I've read it a number of times. I've actually acted in it. (laughs) Although don't get your, don't get too excited about that. (laughs) I'm not saying I did well. It was an, an extremely amateur production. But I know Hamlet pretty well. So I think I will probably just kind of skim it because I mostly have to focus right now on doing my schoolwork. And probably in a couple of weeks after the workload gets lower, I can get caught up on what I've missed and continue on with greater zeal in the Shakespeare project this year. But in the meantime, I want to share with you a little bit about a wonderful husband and wife pair, a couple, of uh, amazing Catholic theologians. Some of you probably know about them. Um, And I had heard of them before, but I've never read or heard anything that they have written. Their names are Dietrich and Alice von Hildebrand. Dietrich von Hildebrand is regarded as one of the greatest Catholic thinkers of the 20th century. And he recently passed away. I don't know how recently, uh, actually. It it might have been as as many as like 10 years ago. Um, It wasn't like just yesterday or anything. But he lived throughout the 20th century. He was a contemporary with the still-living Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, as well as von Balthasar and some of these other great luminaries of the 20th century. Dietrich von Hildebrand, he was a great influence on John Paul II as well. He was a champion of the philosophical school of personalism, which I believe we've already spoken about on this podcast. Personalism, having to do with the human person. His wife, Alice von Hildebrand, is still living. She's 97 years old. Praise God. And I actually just this morning listened to her on a podcast. If you ever want to listen to a podcast about uh, Catholic sacred music and art, it's called Square Notes, like uh, the musical notes that make up a piece of Gregorian chant. Square Notes. It's a clever name. And if you just go on your podcast app and search for it, you'll find it. And the latest episode today is from Dr. Alice von Hildebrand. And it was amazing. It was mind-blowing to listen to her. She's 97 years old. She's sharp as a tack. She's got a uh, rather thick German accent, but I think German, maybe Austrian, um, which you will take maybe a little deciphering. But it, it was just amazing to, to hear her, to hear her thoughts, um, having seen all that she's seen, experienced all she's experienced. And she is a brilliant scholar in her own right. You know, her husband is just this incredible, uh, as I said, luminary. I mean, he's, he's world-renowned. 
But Dr. Alice von Hildebrand is a powerhouse too. <laughs> I mean, she is really a genius, a theological and a philosophical genius. And so I've been working with this text called The Nature of Love, which is written by Dietrich von Hildebrand, the husband, um, for my paper for one of my classes uh, on human sexuality, The Nature of Love. Uh, in this book, among other points, Dietrich von Hildebrand makes this point. He, he, he's, he's trying to create, he's trying to arrive at kind of an adequate phenomenological description of what is love. You know, baby, don't hurt me. And so Dietrich von Hildebrand, he identifies two um, correlative intentions in human love. Which, so they always go together. It's not to say that you shouldn't think of it from a, like a dualist point of view, like one is good or one is bad. No, they're always together in human love. But he does say one must have primacy. And uh, that means, well, he's, he's, after he creates his adequate description of love, he wants to build to an ethics of love. And so his ethical point about love is that one of these intentions must have priority. And in our relationships, we have to work at this. We have to work at it. We have to kind of build virtue, you know, in order for this to be the case. But first, what are the two intentions? He calls them the intentio benevolentiae and the intentio unitatis or intentio unionis, which means the intention of benevolence and the intention of union. And so in any relationship, you have these two intentions. The intention of benevolence is looking toward the beloved and saying, I want what is truly good for you. And um, if you have any, any experience with the history of Catholic thought, this will seem familiar to you because that's basically St. Thomas Aquinas' definition of charity, caritas, willing the good of the other. For, for von Hildebrand, that's the intensio benevolentiae, benevolent love toward the other. I want what is truly good for you. And that means even if it's not what, what would seem to be best for me, I desire it more because it is what is best for you. That is benevolent love. Alongside the intentio benevolentiae, you have the intention of union, which is the intention of the lover to be united with the beloved. So these two always go together. They're both beautiful aspects of love, beautiful um, intentions, or you could say motive forces of love, um, like the, t the twin engines on which the rocket ship of love takes off, <laughs> benevolence and desire for union. But von Hildebrand convincingly makes the case that benevolence must have priority and this is key. And John Paul II really picks up on this too in his book, Love and Responsibility. This is really key. Because if benevolence does not have the priority, if, if the intention of union has the priority, again, the intention of union is a beautiful intention. It's, what's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's what leads a man to marry a woman and say, I want to be with you for the rest of my life, no matter what may come. <laughs> I want to be with you. I choose you. It's a beautiful thing. But the intention of union, if it has priority over the intention of benevolence, it can become self-referential. It can become 
curve back on itself in a certain way, it can become a kind of a selfishness. Because what if the, my desire as the lover to, to, you don't exactly want to use this language, but I'll use it for the sake of clarity. To, my desire as the lover to possess the beloved. What if this desire that I have is not at this moment what is best for the beloved? What if my desire for possession, my desire for union, my desire is in conflict with what is truly good for the one who I love? Well, if I pursue that desire at the expense of the beloved, then the intention of union takes priority over the intention of benevolence. But then love becomes something corrupted. Love becomes something utilitarian. It becomes, uh, you know, a vehicle for my own fulfillment, for my own seeking of pleasure, from, or my own seeking of security or something. And it's not really about the beloved anymore. And that doesn't really fully deserve the name of love. And it can quickly devolve into something very disordered and very corrupted. So the, the intention of benevolence has to have the priority. And the intention of union goes right along with it, to be sure. But the intention of benevolence comes first, such that I will do what is truly good for the beloved, even if it comes into conflict with what I might happen to desire at that time. That's love that is self-sacrificial. That's love that is truly focused on the other as other, as another person, another human person of equal dignity to myself with, you know, pr precisely as many <laughs> desires and, and fears uh, as I have in my own heart. And just to keep that in mind in our relationships, that fosters a disposition in us of reverence. And this is what Dietrich von Hildebrand's wife, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, was talking about in the podcast I heard today. She was driving home especially the theme of reverence. She even quotes her husband saying, reverence is the mother of all the virtues, which I found to be an incredibly compelling statement. One thing, it's, it's a bold thing to say, <laughs> reverence, the mother of all virtues. It's not really in line with our Catholic tradition, but I think you can make a strong case for it. Reverence, because, because what is reverence? <laughs> Not to get off on a tangent, but to have reverence, for example, to have reverence towards another person is to look upon them with a kind of an attitude of awe. To look upon them and say, you and I exist in a world of things, you know? All around us, there's grass and, and, and I'm just looking around me right now. Okay, I'm, I'm in my backyard in my mom's house. <laughs> All around us is grass and fences and, 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 and birds and dirt and air and trees and stuff, you know, and it's all good. But you and I are not like all this stuff. You and I are something eternal, something immortal. You and I are something greater than the world. And I look upon you and I say, you are worth more than all the gold in the world, than all the stars in the sky. Because you are a son or a daughter of God. And this is the point C.S. Lewis was making in his book, The Weight of Glory. He has a wonderful quote in that book about the value of, of, of human beings. And it's really a quote about reverence. Let's see if I can find it. I just found it the other day. 
Yes, here it is. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, he says, It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Isn't that the most amazing quote from C.S. Lewis? And that encapsulates, so it illustrates so beautifully the virtue of reverence, the mother of all virtues, as the von Hildebrands are, are teaching us. You know? So to have reverence for another person is to see them in that light, if you want, in the light of eternity and of who they really are, their fundamental identity, their human dignity, and who they might become and who God wants them to become. We're walking among potential saints. <laughs> Or, as C.S. Lewis points out, you know, potentially worse than the demons. Um, that's the sad reality. And in every interaction, we're helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. Wow, that's something to really contemplate and to think about. But above all, it should inspire in us a disposition of reverence. When we look upon our fellow human beings, and especially those with whom we've entered into relationships, be they family relationships or spouses or friendships which are committed and intentional, uh, whatever it may be, when we are interacting with these people, we should have an attitude toward them of reverence, uh, not taking them for granted, not treating them as merely ordinary or disposable, and certainly not as means to an end for myself, uh, a means to some kind of pleasure or something, fulfillment or something that I might need. No, no, no. We must rather put the intention of benevolence first. When we look on them as truly good in themselves for their own sake, we look on them with gratitude as a good gift by simply being my friend or my spouse or my family member or whatever. They're giving me a good gift, the gift of themselves, the gift of their own life. It's a, a gift of incalculable value. And so to look on them with that disposition and to try to respond in kind, and to seek to do what is truly good for them. Because if we look on them with reverence, then we, that will naturally foster in us a disposition of benevolence, and not, not of, of use, not of, of seeking self-satisfaction or, or my own pleasure, you know, but seeking what is truly good for them because I see them as truly good. So this is just something I've been studying and it's been kind of mind-blowing <laughs> from the thought of these two amazing Catholic doctors, Dr. Alice and Dietrich von Hildebrand.
and uh, I highly recommend to you if you are interested in reading something of kind of a philosophical uh, density, <laughs> you can pick up The Nature of Love by Dr. Dietrich von Hildebrand. But if not, then just go listen to this podcast on Square Notes by Dr. Alice von Hildebrand. It's only about maybe 20 to 25 minutes. And you can find it on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And with that, friends, we've come to the end of another weekly episode of In Your Embrace podcast. I will be speaking to you again about this time, more or less, next week, unless I happen to pick up the daily reflections again uh, before then. But you should be able to see a, uh, a bonus episode with my homily sometime this coming week, probably Monday, if you keep an eye out for that. In the meantime... Uh, I just pray that these days of Easter are going to be an outpouring of incredible graces for each and every one of you as they are proving to be for me. Although we're in strange circumstances and we continue to be at home and in our quarantines and, you know, our, our, our present circumstances of life are just continuing as they were before Easter. Remember, we are not as we were. We have lived through another Easter. We have experienced a new resurrection with Christ into the life of the Father, into the life of heaven, of eternal glory. And we've taken another step towards that, that eternal weight of glory which awaits us. If we cooperate with the Father's will, we surrender to Him in all things, then He will raise us up to heights of glory greater than the angels, like C.S. Lewis proposes to us. So let's keep our eyes fixed on heaven, keep our hearts fixed on things that are above as we journey on through this Easter season of sober joy. My friends, may God bless you. May He protect you from all evil. And may He bring you to everlasting life. Amen. Alleluia. Alleluia.